Hello, all you beautiful CKTZ Cortez community radio listeners out there. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Listening In. My name is Francesca, and today I'm going to be reading an old classic, a new classic, Michael Ondaatje's book, The Cat's Table. Although Michael has been a successful author many, many years before he published this particular book, I had not actually read any of his works until The Cat's Table. And after having read The Cat's Table, I vowed I'd read everything this man had ever written. So I went back to the library, I went back to the bookstores, I looked up all of his books, and oddly, sadly, I couldn't find any other book that was actually readable. However, The Cat's Table compensates adequately for that shortcoming. Reading from the jacket of the book, we learn that in the early 1950s in Selyon, an 11-year-old boy is put alone aboard a ship bound for England. At mealtimes, he is seated at the insignificant cat's table, as far from the captain's table as can be, with two other lone boys and a small group of strange fellow passengers. One appears to be a shadowy figure from the British Secret Service, another a mysterious thief, another seems all too familiar with the dangerous ways of women and crime. On the long sea voyage across the Indian Ocean and through the Suez Canal, the three boys rush from one wild adventure and startling discovery to another, experiencing the first stirrings of desire, spying at night on a notorious shackled prisoner, moving easily between the decks and the holds of the ship. As the secret of adult world is slowly revealed to them, they realize that a drama is unfolding on the ship, and the prisoner's crime and fate will be a galvanizing mystery that will haunt and link them forever. Departure. What had there been before such a ship in my life? A dugout canoe on a river journey? A launch in Trincomalee Harbor? There were always fishing boats on our horizon, but I could never have imagined the grandeur of this castle that was to cross the sea. The longest journeys I had made were car rides to Nuara Elijai and Horton Plains, or the train to Jaffna, which we boarded at 7 a.m. and disembarked from in the late afternoon. We made that journey with our egg sandwiches, some thalalugulis, and a pack of cards and a small boy's own adventure. But now it had been arranged I would be traveling to England by ship and that I would be making the journey alone. No mention was made that this might be an unusual experience or that it could be exciting or dangerous, so I did not approach it with any joy or fear. I was not forewarned that the ship would have seven holds hold more than 600 people, including a captain, nine cooks, engineers, a veterinarian, and that it would contain a small jail and chlorinated pools that would actually sail with us over two oceans. The departure date was marked casually on the calendar by my aunt, who had notified the school that I would be leaving at the end of term. The fact of my being at sea for 21 days was spoken of as having not much significance, so I was surprised my relatives were even bothering to accompany me to the harbor. I had assumed I would be taking a bus by myself and then change on to another at Borella Junction. There had been just one attempt to introduce me to the situation of the journey. A lady named Flavia Prinz, 
whose husband knew my uncle, turned out to be making the same journey and was invited to tea one afternoon to meet with me. She would be traveling in first class, but promised to keep an eye on me. I shook her hand carefully as it was covered with rings and bangles, and then she turned away to continue the conversation I had interrupted. I spent most of the hour listening to a few uncles and counting how many of the trimmed sandwiches they ate. On my last day, I found an empty school examination booklet, a pencil, a pencil sharpener, a traced map of the world, and put them into my small suitcase. I went outside and said goodbye to the generator, dug up the pieces of radio I had once taken apart and, being unable to put them back together, had buried them under the lawn. I said goodbye to Narayan and goodbye to Gunepala. As I got into the car, it was explained to me that after I'd crossed the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea and the Red Sea and gone through the Suez Canal into the Mediterranean, I would arrive one morning on a small pier in England and my mother would be there to meet me. It was not the magic or the scale of the journey that was of concern to me, but the detail of how my mother could know exactly when I would arrive in that other country and if she would be there. I heard a note being slipped under my door. It assigned me to table 76 for all my meals. The other bunk had not been slept in. I dressed and went out. I was not used to the stairs and climbed them warily. In the dining room, there were nine people at table 76, and that included two other boys roughly my age. We seem to be at the cat's table, the woman called Miss Laschetti said. We're in the least privileged place. It was clear we were located far from the captain's table, which was at the opposite end of the dining room. One of the two boys at our table was named Ramadan, and the other was called Cassius. The first was quiet, the other looked scornful, and we ignored one another, although I recognized Cassius. I had gone to the same school where, even though he was a year older than I, I knew much about him. He had been notorious and was even expelled for a term. I was sure it was going to take a long time before we spoke. But what was good about our table was that there seemed to be several interesting adults. We had a botanist and a tailor who owned a shop up in Candy. Most exciting of all, we had a pianist who cheerfully claimed to have hit the skids. This was Mr. Mazzappa. In the evening, he played with the ship's orchestra, and during the afternoons, he gave piano lessons. As a result, he'd had a discount on his passage. After that first meal, he entertained Ramadan and Cassius and me with tales of his life. It was by being in Mr. Mazzappa's company, as he regaled us with confusing and often obscene lyrics from songs he knew, that we three came to accept one another, for we were shy and awkward. Not one of us had made even a gesture of greeting to the other two until Mazzappa took us under his wing and advised us to keep our eyes and ears open, that this voyage would be a great education. So, by the end of our first day, we discovered we could become curious together. Another person of interest at the cat's table was Mr. Neville, a retired ship dismantler who was returning to England after a patch of time in the East. 
We sought out this large and gentle man often, for he had detailed knowledge about the structure of ships. He had dismantled many famous vessels. Unlike Mr. Mazzappa, Mr. Neville was modest and would speak of these episodes in his past only if you knew how to nudge an incident out of him. If he had not been so modest in the way he responded to our barrage of questions, we would not have believed him or have been so enthralled. He also had a complete run of the ship, for he was doing safety research for the Orient Line. He introduced us to his cohorts in the engine and furnace rooms, and we watched the activities that took place down there. Compared to first class, the engine room at Hayes level churned with unbearable noise and heat. A two-hour walk around the Oronsei with Mr. Neville clarified all the dangerous and not-so-dangerous possibilities. He told us the lifeboats swaying in midair only seemed dangerous, and so Cassius and Ramadin and I often climbed into them to have a vantage point for spying on passengers. It had been Miss Laschetti's remark about our being in the least privileged place, with no social importance, that persuaded us into an accurate belief that we were invisible to officials such as the purser and the head steward and the captain. Late at night, after the specially invited first-class passengers had left the captain's table, and after the dancing had ended with couples, their mast removed, barely sitting in each other's arms, and after the stewards had taken away the abandoned glasses and ashtrays and were leaning on the four-foot-wide brooms to sweep away the colored swirls of paper, they brought out the prisoner. It was usually before midnight. The deck shone because of a cloudless moon. He appeared with the guards, one chained to him, one walking behind him with a baton. We did not know what his crime was. We assumed it could only have been murder. The concept of anything more intricate, such as a crime of passion or a political betrayal, did not exist in us then. He looked powerful, self-contained, and he was barefoot. Cassius had discovered this late-night schedule for the prisoner's walk, so the three of us were often there at that hour. He could, we thought among ourselves, leap over the railing, along with the guard who was chained to him, into the dark sea. We thought of him running and leaping this way to his death. We thought this, I suppose, because we were young, for the very idea of a chain, of being contained, was like suffocation. At our age, we could not endure the idea of it. We could hardly stand to wear sandals when we went for our meals. And every night as we ate at our table in the dining room, we imagined the prisoner eating scraps from a metal tray barefoot in his cell. An Australian. In the hours before dawn, when we got up to roam what felt like a deserted ship, the cavernous saloons smelled of the previous night's cigarettes, and Ramadan and Cassius and I would already have turned the silent library into a mayhem of rolling trolleys. One morning, we suddenly found ourselves hemmed in by a girl on roller skates racing around the wooden perimeter of the upper deck. It seemed she had been getting up even earlier than we had. There was no acknowledgement on her part of our existence as she raced faster and faster, the fluent strides testing her balance. 
On one turn, mistiming a cornered leap over the cables, she crashed into the stern railing. She got up, looked at the slash of blood on her knee, and continued, glancing at her watch. She was Australian, and we were enthralled. We had never witnessed such determination. None of the female members of our families behaved this way. Later, we recognized her in the pool, her speed a barrage of water. It would not have surprised us if she'd leapt off the Oronse into the sea and kept pace for 20 minutes alongside the ship. We therefore began waking even earlier to watch her roller skate the 50 or 60 laps. When she finished, she'd unlace her skates and walk exhausted, sweating and fully clothed towards the outdoor shower. She would stand in the gush and spray of it, tossing her hair this way, that way, like some clothed animal. This was a new kind of beauty. When she left, we followed her footprints, which were already evaporating in the sunlight as we approached them. Thievery. One morning, I was persuaded by a man known to us as Baron C to help with a project. He needed a small, athletic boy, and he had been watching me dive for spoons in the pool. First of all, I was invited by him to have some ice cream in the first-class lounge. Then, in his cabin, in order to demonstrate my skill, I was asked to remove my sandals, get on the furniture, and move as fast as I could around the room without ever touching the floor. I thought this was peculiar, but I leapt from the armchair onto the desk, then to the bed, and swung myself hanging on the door over to the bathroom. Compared with mine, it was a very large cabin, and after a few minutes I stood there, barefoot on the thick carpet, panting like a dog, at which point he brought me a pot of tea. It's Colombo tea, not ship tea, he said, adding condensed milk into the cup. The man knew what good tea was. So far, we had been served what tasted like dishwater on the ship, and I had stopped drinking it. In fact, I would not drink tea for years. But the Baron made me my last good cup of tea. He had brought out very small cups, so I had to have several that day. The Baron told me I was athletic. He walked me to his door and pointed to the window above it. It was rectangular and had a small latch that could secure it shut. Now the glass lay horizontal, flat like a tray, allowing the air to come into and go out of the room. Think you can climb through that? Not waiting for an answer, he cupped his hands and made me climb onto them and up onto his shoulders. I was six feet from the ground. I began crawling into the opening, precarious on the glass and its wooden frame, scared I would fall through. Protecting this open space further were two horizontal bars. He asked me to try working my body between them, but I could not get through. It's no use, get down. I put my knees on his shoulders again and held on to his brilliantined hair and climbed down, feeling I had betrayed him in some way, especially after the ice cream and the good tea. I'll have to try someone else, he muttered to himself, as if I were no longer in his presence. And then, conscious of my disappointment, he said, I am sorry. The next day, I saw the baron at the pool speaking with another boy, who a short while later accompanied him to the upper deck. He was smaller than I was, though perhaps not as athletic, 
because the boy returned within an hour and talked only about the tea and biscuits he had been given. Then, perhaps a day after that, I was invited by the baron to come to his cabin and attempt to climb through the window again. He had, he said, another idea. As we passed the steward who guarded the entrance to first class, the baron said, My nephew, having him over for tea. And soon I was strolling legally through the carpeted lounge, keeping my eyes open for Flavia Prinz, for this was also her territory. He asked me to wear my swimsuit, and when I removed the rest of my clothes, he brought out a small pail of motor oil that he'd managed to get from the engine room and made me spread the thick black liquid all over my body from the neck down. Then, once again, I was hoisted up to the open window, beyond which were the two horizontal bars. And this time, covered in oil, I slid through like a needle and dropped to the floor of the corridor on the other side of the door. I knocked, and he let me back in. He was grinning. Immediately, he gave me a bathrobe to wear, and we went along the empty corridor. He knocked at a door, and when there was no response, he hoisted me up with his palms, and this time I slipped through the open window the other way into a stateroom. I unlocked the door from the inside, and as the baron entered, he patted me on the head. He sat in an armchair briefly, winked at me, then got up and began looking around the room, opening up a few cupboard drawers. We were out in minutes. Looking back, I think he may have convinced me that the breaking and entering that followed was a private game between him and some friends, for what he was doing seemed relaxed and good-natured. He strolled through a suite, his hands casually in his trouser pockets as he peered at objects on a shelf or on a desk or glanced into further rooms. I recall he once found a large sheaf of papers that he dropped into a sports bag. I also saw him pocket a silver-bladed knife. While he did this, I was mostly looking out from one of the portholes out to sea. If they were open, I'd hear yells from the quiets players on the lower deck. That was the excitement for me, and being in such a large cabin. The one I shared with Mr. Hasty was about the size of a stateroom's large bed. I walked into one fully mirrored bathroom and suddenly saw receding images of myself, semi-naked, covered in black oil, just a brown face and spiky hair. There was a wild boy in there, somebody from one of the Jungle Book stories whose eyes watched me, white as lamps. This was, I think, the first reflection or portrait that I remember of myself. It was the image of my youth that I would hold on to for years, someone startled, half-formed, who had not become anyone or anything yet. I became aware of the Baron on the edge of the mirror frame, watching me. He had a considering look. It was as if he understood what I was seeing in the mirror, as if he too had done that once. He threw me a towel and asked me to clean myself up and put on the rest of my clothes, which he'd brought in his sports bag. I could not wait to tell the others at the next turbine room meeting what had happened to me. I felt my authority grow, but in retrospect, I see that what the Baron gave me was another self, something as small as a pencil sharpener. It was a little escape into being somebody else, 
a door I would postpone opening for some years, at least until I was beyond my teens. Those half-blurred afternoons remained with me. I remember one day after he knocked on a door and got no reply, and I had slid through the bars of the window frame and let him in. We were shocked to find someone asleep in the large bed, the table beside him arrayed with medicine bottles. The baron held up his palm for silence, went closer and stared at the comatose body, which I would realize later was Sir Hector de Silva. The baron touched my shoulder and gestured to a metal bust of the millionaire on the dresser. While the baron continued looking around the room for valuables, gems, I supposed, that was, after all, what thieves seemed to take, I looked back and forth comparing the metal head with the real one. The bust made the sleeping man look leonine and noble, in contrast to the reality it rested on the pillow. I tried lifting the bust into my arms, but it was too heavy. The baron now leafed through documents, but did not take any. Instead, he plucked a small green statue of a frog off the mantelpiece. Jade, he bent down and whispered to me. And then, almost too personally, he took a photograph of a young woman that was in a silver frame beside the man's bed. He told me, as we walked down the corridor a few minutes later, that he found her very attractive. Perhaps, he said, I will meet her at some point on this journey. The Baron would disembark prematurely at Port Said, for by then suspicions of a thief on board were making the rounds, although they were not, of course, directed at anyone in first class. I knew that at Eden he mailed off some packages. In any case, all of a sudden he stopped asking me to meet him. He took me for a final tea in the Bedford Lounge, and I hardly saw him from then on. I never knew whether he had been stealing simply to cover his first-class passage or to give money to an ailing brother or some old partner in crime. He seemed to me a generous man. I still remember how he looked, how he dressed, although I'm not sure if he was English or one of those mongrels who have assumed the panache of aristocracy. I do know that whenever I am in a country where they put up the faces of criminals in post offices, I look for him. A spell. If our journey to England was recorded for any reason in the newspapers of the time, it was because of the presence on the Oronsay of the philanthropist Sir Hector de Silva. He had boarded the ship and was traveling with a retinue that included two doctors, one Ayurvedic, a lawyer, his wife and daughter. Most of them stayed in the upper echelons of the ocean liner and were seldom seen by us. No one in his party accepted the invitation to eat at the captain's table. It was assumed they were above even that, although the reason was that Sir Hector, a Moratwa entrepreneur who had ground out his fortune in gems, rubber, and plots of land, was now suffering from a possibly fatal illness and was on his way to Europe to find a doctor who would save him. Not one English specialist had been willing to come to Colombo to deal with Sir Hector's medical problem, in spite of being offered considerable remuneration. Harley Street would remain in Harley Street in spite of a recommendation from the British governor who had dined with Sir Hector in his Colombo mansion and in spite of the fact that Sir Hector had been knighted in England for his donations to various charities.
So now he was cocooned in a grand double suite on the Oronsee, suffering from hydrophobia. At first, we did not concern ourselves with Sir Hector's illness. His presence on board ship was seldom mentioned by those at the cat's table. He was famous because of his great wealth, and that did not hold any interest for us. But what did make us curious was our discovery of the background to his fateful journey. It had happened this way. One morning, Hector de Silva had been breakfasting on his balcony with friends. They were joking amongst themselves in the way that those whose lives are safe and comfortable entertain one another. At that moment, a venerable Butaramuli, or holy priest, walked past the house. Seeing the monk, Sir Hector punned off the title by saying, Ah, there goes a Mutarabala. Mutara, meaning urinating, and bala, meaning dog. Therefore, there goes a urinating dog. It was a quick-witted but inappropriate remark. Having overheard the insult, the monk paused, pointed to Sir Hector, and said, I'll send you a mutarabala. After which the venerable, reputedly a practitioner of witchcraft, went straight to the temple, where he chanted several mantras, thereby sealing the fate of Sir Hector de Silva and closing the door on his affluent life. I cannot remember who told us the first part of that story, but the curiosity among Cassius and Ramadan and me immediately pulled the millionaire's presence in emperor's class into the foreground of our thoughts. We were busy trying to figure out as much as we possibly could after that. I even sent a note to my supposed guardian, Flavia Prims, and she met me briefly by the entrance to first class and said she knew nothing. She was annoyed because my note had hinted at an emergency and I had interrupted one of her important bridge games. The problem was that at the cat's table, the others were not talking much about it, not enough for us. So eventually we approached the assistant purser who, Ramadan noted, had a glass eye and he was able to reveal more. Sometime after the episode with the passing venerable, Sir Hector was coming down the stairs of his great house. The assistant purser used the phrase, climbing down the staircase. His pet terrier was at the foot of the steps waiting to greet him, a usual occurrence. This was an animal loved by all members of the family. As Sir Hector bent down, the affectionate animal leapt for his neck. Sir Hector pulled the dog off, at which point the animal bit his hand. Two servants eventually got hold of the creature and put it in a kennel. While the animal was being caged, an in-law treated the bite. Apparently, the terrier had already behaved strangely that morning, racing around the kitchen under the feet of the servants and had been chased out of the house with a broom before slipping back calm and muted at the last minute so it could wait its master at the foot of the stairs. The dog had bitten no one during the earlier fracas. Later that day, Sir Hector passed the kennel and wagged his bandaged finger at the animal. Twenty-four hours later, the dog died, having shown symptoms of rabies. But by then, the urinating dog had already delivered his message. One by one they came. Every respected doctor who serviced Colombo Seven was brought in for a consultation for a cure. Sir Hector was, 
save for a few illegal gun runners or gem merchants whose worth would almost be unknown, the richest man in the city. The doctors spoke in whispers all the way down the long corridors of his house, arguing and finessing the defense against rabies, which was already beginning to affect the wealthy body upstairs. The virus was traveling at 5 to 10 millimeters per hour to other cells, and there were already symptoms such as burning, itching, and numbness at the sight of the bite, but the terrible signs of hydrophobia were not yet apparent. As the patient was being given supportive care, the duration of the illness might last as long as 25 days before it was fatal. The terrier was dug up and checked once more to be certain of rabies. Telegrams were sent to Brussels, Paris, and London, and three staterooms were booked on the Oronsay, which was the next ship leaving for Europe, just in case. The liner would stop at Aden, Port Said, and Gibraltar, and it was hoped a specialist would be able to meet with the vessel in at least one of these locations. The surreal revelations about the man with a curse on his head thrilled us. We gathered every fragment of Sir Hector's story and remained hungry for more. We cast our minds back to the night of embarkment in Colombo Harbor and tried to recall, or to imagine at least, a stretcher and the body of the millionaire being carried at a slight tilt up the gangplank. Whether we had witnessed this or not, the scene was now indelible in our minds. For the first time in our lives, we were interested in the fate of the upper classes, and gradually it became clear to us that Mr. Mazzappa and his musical legends, and Mr. Fonseca with his songs from the Azores, and Mr. Daniels with his plants, who had been until then like gods to us, were only minor characters, there to watch how those with real power progressed or failed in this world.